Acts chapter 5 this morning. We will be examining, Lord willing, verses 1 through 11. Before we get started, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, help us as we consider this text and the obvious contrast between this text and last week's text that you will open our eyes, challenge us, encourage us, uh, remind us again of your holiness, your righteousness, your abhorrence of evil and sin, and at the same time remind us of your redemption. So help us. In your name I pray. Amen. In Acts chapter 5, we come to what can be arguably said to be probably the most famous text of the book of Acts. Some people would would put uh, the day of Pentecost there, Peter's message, and the movement of the Spirit, as well as Acts chapter 5, I'm sorry, Acts chapter uh, 7 with uh, Stephen. Um, But I suspect that probably if you surveyed Average Christians, the first, one of the first, if not the first, uh, specific passages they would mention would probably be uh, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. It's very famous. Uh, probably most of us have known this story since we were young. And uh, yet at the same time, I think that there, even in the familiarity of it, there's something really valuable to be gleaned from it and be either reminded of or to learn anew. We've even talked about it numerous times in reference or in in passing. We've referenced Ananias and Sapphira many, many times because there's so many important uh, lessons to be drawn out of this text. Obviously, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5 is set in absolute contrast to Barnabas in the previous passage from last week because Ananias and Sapphira and Barnabas basically do the exact same thing. They both sell property and they both uh, bring the property and lay it at Peter's feet. The property, the money from the property sale, and lay it at Peter's feet. It is also a contrast, however, in uh, between Acts chapter five verses one through eleven to Acts chapter two through the end of four in in a broader sense. Because what do you see in Acts chapter two? You see the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon the people with power. The disciples and the other followers. And they are proclaiming the gospel. And many people get saved. The church is this new, uh, um, uh, primitive, as is described, church that forms in Acts chapter 2, continues on through the end of chapter 4. And God is working in miraculous ways. God the Holy Spirit is moving powerfully. You can't miss it, right? It's very evident. There's no, uh, clearly, I'm sure, some people have asked me about this. Do you think anybody sinned between Acts 2 and the end of 4? Yes, of course. They're, they're sinners. They're going to sin. But it's an absolute contrast in the, uh, between the church before Acts chapter 5 and what takes place in chapter 5. Now, what I would say is also interesting is what happens in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, is going to have what I would argue is an indelible mark on the church the rest of the way through. I think it's one of the reasons why Acts chapter 5 is so important. One of several. What I mean by that is Acts 2 through 4, the best we can say, is there sin present in Acts 2 through 4? Yes, although we don't see it. It's not recorded. There's a really good reason why it's not recorded. And the reason why it's not recorded is because evidently, according to what the text actually does say in 2 through 4, they're of one mind and soul. That's what it says, doesn't it? Which means what? 
well, are people sinning? Well, of course they are. But what is happening is people are being called to repentance and they are they're confessing their sins, they're repenting, and they're, re- they're returning, to use the Old Testament term, they're returning to God, to worship, to intimacy. But something shifts in Acts chapter 5. And I would argue that you see a continuing trajectory from chapter 5 all the way through to the end of Acts chapter 3, or I'm sorry, end of Revelation chapter 3. And that is this, that there begins a process of people sinning but not repenting. That's what we see, don't we? That's what you in general see. You see a trajectory of the church where there is a faithful remnant that are sinning, yes, but they're repenting and they're turning back to Jesus. They're loving Jesus and they're enjoying the intimacy with Jesus. But at the same time, they're doing what? They're not made perfect yet, so they're still struggling with sin. Paul himself said in Acts chapter, or Romans chapter 7, did he not? The very things that I know I should do, those aren't the things that I do. The very things I, I know I shouldn't do, those are the very things I do. You know what he said? A wretched man that I am. It's pretty clear. But he, in, Acts cha- in Romans chapter 7, and going into chapter 8 of Romans, does what? He clearly repents and returns to Jesus, doesn't he? That's, that's the trajectory of Paul. And I would argue it's the trajectory of the faithful remnant. But one of the things we discover in the grand sweep of, of biblical teaching is that there's always a faithful remnant, but remnant is pretty small, isn't it? So the, 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 the general idea of the argument of, of not just Acts chapter 5, but the entirety of the teaching of, of the church, as well as you see, it, you see it in the Old Testament as well, is that there is going to be some problems in the church. Don't we see that? There's going to be some really problems, really big problems. Paul sums it up so well in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-9, through 9, when he warns Timothy, be aware, be careful, watch out, because in the last days difficult times will come, and I'll add the words, because it, that's what he's referring to, in the church. Difficult times will come in the church, because... Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, and then he goes on and on and on and on. And the implication of all that section in 2 Timothy chapter 3 is what? It's not that they're going to struggle and sin. The implication very strongly of 2 Timothy chapter 3 is that they are going to continue in their sin. That's the difference. They're going to be unrepentant in their sin. Does that make sense? And I would argue that the teaching, the sweeping teaching of the Scriptures is those type of people are not saved people. Now that's really important we get that. They're not saved people. We're in Acts chapter 5, verses 1-11. through 11. They are people who the Spirit is not moving into repentance and change, which is what the Spirit has promised to do. They are people who are heading a different direction. They are on a different trajectory. They are marching to a different drumbeat. Ultimately, they are of a different kingdom. That's the point of the grand sweep of the Scriptures. And you see that everywhere. Which is why the warnings that we saw in in Hebrews are so important. And what, what we find in this early church in Acts chapter 5 is we see the 
a nugget of it or, or, or just an example of it, but it is a really graphic example of it. So let's read it, and then we will work our way through the text. Starting in verse 5, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The, men, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And that's our text this morning. If you haven't picked up yet the contrast between 2 through 4, and more specifically Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira, you can't miss it when you start out in chapter 5, verse 1. The word that starts out the whole passage is what? But. That's the contrast. What did Barnabas do? He sold the property. He brought it. He laid it at the feet of Peter for the distribution for those who were in need. And he did it for what reason? For the glory of Christ. He did it because the Spirit was at work in his heart. He did it because he was enthralled with and captivated with his Redeemer. That make sense? We talked about it last week. But chapter 5, but a man named Ananias with his wife, Sapphira. So what does is, what is, uh, Luke do? He lumps Ananias and Sapphira into the same scheme, does he not? Absolutely. So Ananias and Sapphira do what? Well, chapter 5, verse 1, they sold a piece of property. So far, everything's good to go, right? They did the same thing that Barnabas did, as well as others before. Verse 2, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he does the same thing with the money that everybody else has done. He brings them and lays them at the apostles' feet. Peter being one of the apostles there. What he does different than everybody else that's recorded here is he only brings a part, correct? And he leaves a part there. We don't know how big the part is. I assume the part's a big part. If I may just say this, obviously they think they're going to get away with this, correct? We just read the story, and this should be relatively old data for you. So it must be a significant chunk of change in light of the property they sold. Enough so that they think they're going to get away with this. We're going to talk about what this is in just a second. They keep back a part for themselves, some of the proceeds, and brought only a part of it 
and laid at the apostles' feet. This is where the problem starts. Verse 3. Peter speaks up and says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part uh, for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? And I'm going to fold verse 4 in there as well. And then we're going to stop there. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, did it, was it not at your disposal? Why is it you contrived this deed in your heart? That's the question. You've not lied to man, but to God. We're going to unpack the whole statement of Peter in just a second. But you'll notice a couple things first. Just some observations. Number one, you've already observed in 1 and 2 that these two work together, plan to only give part, right? They sold the property. They're only going to give a part. I suspect a large part. But they're only going to give a part and they're going to keep a part for themselves. Now, this conspiring that we see, however, is something much bigger and more sinister than that. Because one of the things we see in 3 and 4 is what? Peter makes it really clear that this was a voluntary thing. Observation, right? Here we are. Just another observation. This was a voluntary thing. This wasn't required. This wasn't socialism or communism. This was, was a voluntary thing. The other people, Barnabas and the others, voluntarily, because of their love for Christ, they chose to sell some properties and donate the money for the care of the poor and the ministry. But in verse 1 and 2, it says that they keep back a part. But the implication is they're trying to imply something, isn't it? Aren't they? They're trying to imply what? Pretty simple. That they're giving it all. There's no evidence, by the way, at this point. It's only Ananias there at this point. There's no evidence in the text that Ananias came and said, we're giving it all. It doesn't even say that Ananias spoke at all, did he? Not one word did Ananias say. He just came in and laid it at the apostles' feet. But the point of the matter is, they are trying to present themselves like Barnabas. They're trying to present themselves like the rest of these people of the early church who sold property and gave it all. They're trying to present themselves as holy and righteous people. Because ultimately, the way they're thinking is there is benefit to identifying as a holy and righteous person. There's benefit to that, but I don't want the cost involved. You get that, don't you? I don't want to pay the cost for that, but I want the benefits, the perks of that. Does that make sense? Now, the operative phrase and everything I just said is what? What's the operative, operative word that I used for all that I just said? There's one word that was really important. I. Right? I. That's the way Ananias and Sapphira are talking to each other. As they're conspiring, they're saying I and we. Now, it doesn't, I'm, I'm reading into it. But you notice what's going on. Because they're not doing it for the glory of God, they're not doing it for their, because of their great love for Christ and for their redemption. They're doing it for status, position, honor, glory. You hear all those in there? I mean, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? Don't you, don't you detect that? And so in effect, what they're doing is they are stealing glory from God. They're thieves. 
and they're stealing glory from God. Yes, absolutely. And they want it in their own way. Yes. But it's interesting. You look at the story, and this is what's going on. And here's something, another observation. They bring it and lay it, or he brings it and lays it at the apostles' feet. Peter immediately speaks up as one of the apostles. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Verse 3. He asks the question, why has, the, how, why has Satan filled your heart? Interesting statement. You almost detect in, that Peter's incredulous. How's this happened? How has it happened that you can be controlled by, filled by, ruled by Satan? How can it possibly be Ananias and Sapphira? And the implication in his statement is, why does this happen? How, how can it possibly be after all you've observed and seen? You've seen the power, Acts chapter 2. You saw, you, you heard all these different languages being spoken. You've seen all these people who killed Jesus, who literally killed Jesus, repent and turn and worship Jesus. And you've seen a supernatural unity and love and care and compassion and faithfulness and fellowship and repentance flowing everywhere over the last couple of weeks in this church. What in the world happened to you? Do you hear Paul here? By the way, this is Luke speaking. Paul hasn't shown up on the scene yet. But you remember Galatians chapter 1? When Paul basically says, how is it possible you could be so easily, it could have been so easily bewitched? Sound familiar? How is it possible that you could be so easily duped like this? Now, could I just stop on this for a second and say, again, building on these observations, on the one side, there's no way somebody filled with the Spirit could act this way. Could we agree with that? There's no way that they would do this if they're filled with the Spirit. There's no way. This is filled with, the, with, 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 with Satan stuff. Isn't it? Absolutely, it's filled with Satan stuff. We could also point out, when we look at verse 3, you'll notice... Observation-wise, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now you'll notice, Tom, you'll appreciate this. I know you will, Tom. He says, why, why, did, did, uh, why has the Holy Spirit filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And then just a little bit later, in um, the end of verse 5, you have not lied to man, but what, Tom? End of verse 5. Yes. Do you hear the connection? Holy Spirit is God. It's very clear in the text. Very clear the connection of the Holy Spirit to God there. So, going back up to the verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to do all these things that he's, that he's talked about? Is an intriguing statement coming from Peter, is it not? 
I want you to stop for a second. Think about this. He just said, why has, the Holy, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit when about 50 or so days earlier, what did Peter do? He lied, didn't he? he Where did he lie? To the slave girl as well as the other people. Three times, right? He lied and said, I don't know him. Right? What's the difference? How could this guy be so arrogant to call Ananias and Sapphira to account? After just 50 days or so earlier, he did the exact same thing. He didn't do it once. He did it three times. You know what the, the difference is? After the resurrection, Jesus did what with the disciples? Breathed upon them and they received the Holy Spirit. And everything was changed. Does that make sense? Everything was changed. He breathed upon the Holy Spirit and everything was changed. And then the Spirit came with power, Acts chapter 2, correct? The Spirit that was promised. So, here's the contrast. Pre-Holy Spirit, pre-power, Peter was like Exhibit A, wasn't he? In the problem? Exhibit A. But because the Spirit was breathed upon Peter and he had the Spirit with power, Exhibit B now looks radically different. Exhibit B being Ananias and Sapphira looks radically different to it from a changed Exhibit A, Peter. Because before, Peter had the Spirit, and before he had the Spirit with power, he lied. And that's not the only thing he did, right? He also lied to Jesus. You realize that earlier than that? He said to Jesus, you don't need to die. That's a lie. He did need to die. He lied. He, of course, got rebuked very strongly for it, didn't he? But post-Holy Spirit, it's not really post because the Spirit remains, but you get my point. Everything changes, doesn't it? That's the old Peter. And the old Peter is what? Changed, yes, but more significant than that. What, what happened to the old Peter? We died, didn't we? Old Peter dies. Doesn't he? Doesn't mean he's perfect, but old Peter dies. And new Peter is now here. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean new Peter doesn't sin, but new Peter does something that the old Peter doesn't do. The new Peter does what when he sins? He repents. Because it's really clear, Acts chapter 15, by the way. <laughs> as well as Acts chapter 11, with the, I'm sorry, 10, with the vision of the unclean animals. He repents, doesn't he? That's what you see. But here in this storyline, we have what? Peter said, redeemed Peter. Holy Spirit controlled Peter. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. And then verse 4, he goes on and says, but while it remained unsold, didn't, wasn't it yours? The obvious answer is, well, yeah, you have the title of the land, it's yours. 
And then he goes on and says, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? And the obvious answer is, well, of course. It just went from being land to being money, correct? But it's still, it's still Ananias and Sapphira's, right? But then he goes on and he says, why is it that you contrive this deed in your heart? And he says, you've not lied to man, but to God. But wait a second, that doesn't make any sense, does it? You've not lied to man, but you've lied to God. He's living out the lie. Doesn't, no evidence that he spoke, but he's living out the lie, right? The lie was in his heart, which is the most, most serious issue. It's not what's on the lips, it's what's in the heart. But the, the, the simple matter of fact is, they're thinking, one aspect of what they're thinking, we're going to see two parts of what they're thinking. The one part that Ananias and, think, Ananias and Sapphira are thinking about is, we can lie in our activity, in our actions, to who? To the apostles and to the rest of the church, right? Because again, they're looking for their own glory. We can lie and achieve our own glory. We can lie to these people. Not with words, but with actions. We can lie. And that's exactly what Ananias is doing. But what does Peter say? Yeah, you're not lying to people. Are you kidding me? That was your first mistake. That's what he's telling them. Your first mistake is you thought you were lying to people. But in fact, you were lying to God. What did David say in Psalm 51 with regard to his sin against Bathsheba? Did you hear that? Let me say it again. For all, I know a number of you said it, but it's, it's, a, it's a passage I've, I've been troubled by for a long time. David said in his prayer in Psalm 51, against you, God, have I, and you alone have I sinned. That, doesn't, that, doesn't, that never clicked with me. How is it possible that David could say, against you and you only have I sinned? I thought he sinned against Bathsheba. And I thought he sinned against Bathsheba's husband. And I thought that he sinned against the entire Israel nation, the people of the whole nation as the king. Did he not? It sounds like it to me. But David, when he prays, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. I never could quite grasp that until just maybe seven or eight, ten years ago, it finally dawned on me what he's talking about there. When I sin, if I sin against Jim, let's say I go over to his house late at night and I slash all the tires on his truck because I'm angry at him for some reason. I slash all his tires. He gets up next morning and he walks outside and all four tires are slashed. Have I sinned against Jim? Well, in some way, I guess. But not really. Do you realize that? I really haven't sinned against Jim. You know why? Because ultimately, Jim is not the lawgiver, is he? Yeah, Jim's not the lawgiver. He was the target. He was the target of my expression, is he not? My anger, my sinning against God, he's a target. He's the expression of it. But ultimately, I sin against the lawgiver, don't I? It, it's, it's one of these reasons why I'm always, lately anyway, I've always been troubled by this, where we, when, when somebody does something against us, the first thing we say is, you really offended me, or you really sinned against me. That says something about me that probably ought not to be said. I'm not a lawgiver. 
My major concern if somebody sins against me, so to speak, is they sin against God, right? Their, their relationship with God has been damaged. The intimacy with their Redeemer has been damaged. Instead, I take it totally horizontally, right? And I get all jacked up and offended by it. No, this is about their relationship with God. And that's exactly what David's talking about. You're the lawgiver. So when I violated your law, whose law? Your law, God's law, I sinned against God. Now, do I need to confess my sins to Jim? Or slash his tire? Well, of course I do. Do I need to ask him to forgive me? Yes, of course I do. Relational, I definitely do. Should I pay for his new tires? Of course I should. <laughs> he hopes so. I mean, that's, that's 2 Timothy chapter 3, right? Absolutely. You're to say something. Well, yeah, I don't, I, I don't have a problem with saying that, that, you know, I just want to be really careful that in our thinking, we're not thinking horizontally, we're thinking vertically. You know, this is a vertical issue because God's the lawgiver. He's the, one who, he's, he's the one who establishes morals. He's the one who establishes rights and wrong. He's the one who establishes everything. And, and Peter is consistent with that when he says, you did not sin, or you did not lie, I'm sorry, you did not lie to men. Well, yes, he did. Well, yeah, they're, they're, that's why I say Jim's the target, right? He's, he's the target of my expression. But I sin against God. That's the point. And that's why Peter says, you didn't, you didn't lie to man. You lied to God. Can I just pause this for just a second and just say this? That kind of changes the tenor of our thinking. We start thinking this way, right? Regarding my sin? I mean, that changes everything, doesn't it? If I sin against Ken, eh, He's a Christian. He's got to forgive me, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, he's a sinner just like I am. It kind of moots the whole thing, or not moots, mutes the pain of it all, doesn't it? But when I recognize against you and you only have I sinned, who's he? When I start thinking about his character, his attributes, when I think about what his son and what his son has accomplished, what his son did on the cross, what his son gave me, what his can ever give me, He's given me wood chips. Right, Ken? He's given me kindling. What has Christ given me? He stood in my place and he gave me his righteousness. Oh my goodness, he shares his inheritance with me. Changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, that's a radical shift. That's a radical shift in thinking. That's where Peter's at when he says to Ananias, against you. I'm sorry, not that you haven't lied against man to man, but you've lied to God. Change from lie to anything. Whatever we struggle with, when we embrace sin, what we did was sin against God. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Ob another observation. Yeah, how, did Peter, how could Peter have recognized it? You're absolutely correct, Nikki. There's no way. This is a Holy Spirit-driven thing, isn't it? You know, some people have tried to waffle around that Peter counted the money and realized there's not enough there. Or, or he, knew, he knew somebody, perhaps, that, that bought it and knew how much they paid. No, this is a Holy Spirit thing. There's no room in the text for anything else. No question about that. So Peter, again... 
You've contrived, why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And interestingly enough, the next statement in verse 5, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Can I just pause on this for a second and, and point out to you something? That Peter does not call Ananias to repentance, does he? Is there even a hint that Peter is being called to repentance here? There's none. Even in the Old Testament, if we look into the Old Testament, um, Achan at least call, was called to repentance, wasn't he, before he was stoned? Ananias isn't even called to repentance. He receives the declaration. You have not lied to man, but to God. And immediately it says what? And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. He was dead. You know what that tells me? Ananias was not a believer. Ananias was not someone filled with the Spirit. Well, the Scriptures are clear on that one, isn't it? He's filled with who? He's filled with Satan. Does that sound like anybody else, by the way? Yes. Same words for Judas. Exactly the same thing. This is not a saved person. This is someone who, if I may use the term, this is someone who... Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 has been sampling of the good things of God. Right? He's been coming to the worship services. He's been coming to the prayer meetings. He's been coming to the breaking of the bread. He's been participating in the discussion of the Scriptures. He's been talking along with everybody else about the Kingdom of God. But when push came to shove, Ananias and Sapphira, at this point Ananias, is after God's Kingdom or man's. He's after his own kingdom, isn't he? Which is ultimately Satan's kingdom. That's what he's after. And the result of that, Peter, or the Holy Spirit, doesn't leave any room for question. Ananias exhibits clearly he's not a redeemed person. And by the way, it's just a picture of the church, is it not? That there isn't the scripture, doesn't the scripture tell us that the church will have unredeemed people in it? 2 Timothy chapter 4 makes it really clear, doesn't it? They, the church will be full of people who have itching ears who will want to draw together people, preachers, teachers that will tickle, I'm sorry, yeah, their ears are itching, that will tickle their itching ears that will not proclaim the truth. And it, it, Paul warns Timothy that it's going to be dramatic and pretty prevalent. Doesn't he? He absolutely does. And you see it. You can't miss it. If you read the epistles, even the best of the epistles, the churches that receive the, 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 the letters, even the best of them, for the most part, are off the rails. Are they not? Aren't they? No, they are. Even the Thessalonian church, for the most part, they're just the people who are all caught up in the return of Jesus. So they're sitting around doing nothing. Waiting for Jesus to return. Just about every one of these churches are struggling, floundering, in some cases way off the rails. Corinthian church, Galatians. Then you get into Revelation 2 and 3. You have one good church, and you have maybe two that are, yeah. And all the rest of them are in various states of nuclear implosion. Are they not? All the way down to the church of Thyatira, it's like totally doomed just about. So this is just like a a precursor of what's yet to come. But yet God keeps a faithful remnant. Does He not? 
And unless he shortens the days, it would be as if, almost as if the, the very elect could be deceived, but they're not going to be. But the Scriptures tell us that the church is going to be in, in, in a, sad, a sad state except for the faithful ones within the true, that are the true church. So Ananias dies. He breathes his last. And notice what happens. What happens next? No, before the young men come in. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. Now, the implication of the text, and it will be developed even further later on, the implication of the text is that great fear falls on all the people in the meeting first, right? There's a bunch of people in the meeting. Ananias walks in. Probably other people are already laying money at, at, at the apostles' feet. Ananias walks in, lays money at Peter's feet. Peter says something, and I suspect he didn't whisper to Ananias. You think? No. He speaks loudly. Everybody there, probably in, uh, over at Solomon's portico up on the Temple Mount, everyone there could have been thousands of people there. Peter speaks loudly. Ananias falls over. The text says that great fear fell on all those who heard of it. Firstly, it's referring to whoever was in, up there at Solomon's portico, which would have been the church, plus other Jews who are not saved coming up to worship. And then in the temple. And then, of course, that would spread like wildfire, wouldn't it? Peter spoke and this guy fell over dead. Peter said, you, you've lied not to men, but God. I don't know what, most people probably couldn't even see what he's talking about, right? But what happened? Peter spoke and he told the guy, this guy, I don't know who he was, but he told this guy that he lied not to men, but to God, and he fell over dead. You think that would create great, great fear? You think? It did. We're going to come back to that text in, in a few seconds. Right now we're just observing. Verse 6. Young men rose up. That's what you mentioned, Ken. The young men rose up, wrapped him up, and carried him out and buried him. And you definitely don't want to leave a dead body in, in the temple. So they carried him out. Verse 7. Somehow or other, Sapphira didn't hear about it. You think maybe the Holy Spirit was keeping her ears closed so she didn't hear? I suspect so. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Verse 8, And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So he, he mentions a figure. They must have counted the money. Tell me that you sold the land for this much. Or whether you sold the land for this much. And she said, Yes, for so much. So clearly, her and Ananias are in cahoots, right? With the crime. Notice how Peter responds. Verse 9, But Peter said to her, How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Interesting little shift in the statement from the previous statement. Notice what he says again, But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together, the idea is with Ananias, to test the Spirit of the Lord. It's an interesting statement. To test the Spirit of the Lord. What does that mean? Let me read it one more time. But Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Can I submit to you what that means? Here's what it means. Paul, Peter is saying to Sapphira, how is it that you agreed to Together, you and Ananias, you and your husband, to test the Spirit of the Lord. What he means is this. 
Sapphira, how is it that the two of you got together to discuss something about the Holy Spirit? And here's what the test is. Let's do this. Let's sell this property. Let's keep some of the proceeds for ourselves. Surely, surely the Holy Spirit, God, won't do anything about that. Surely, remember, Ananias and Sapphira are probably Jews, so they know Yahweh, right? From the Old Testament. They know what God teaches about Himself. And one of the things they know from the Old Testament is what? That God is speedy to discipline and judge or long-suffering? Long-suffering, right? So when it says that they did, when Peter asked this question, why did you do this? Conspire together to test. He's talking about why did you conspire together to put God's long-suffering nature to the test? Surely He won't discipline us. Surely He won't punish us. Surely He'll overlook that. Does that sound familiar? Again, how about Achan? Don't take any of the things devoted to the Lord. Oh, surely God won't mind if I take this coat. Surely God won't mind if I take this silver for myself, for my kingdom. Surely He won't mind. And he hid it underneath the tent, right? He buried it underneath the tent. What happened to Achan? He was stoned, and his wife was stoned, and his children were stoned, and his animals were stoned. Wow. My goodness. What did Ananias do? What, I'm sorry, what, is, what did uh, Achan do? He put God to the test. Surely God won't do this. Let's put him to the test. Surely he won't do this. Ananias, Sapphira, surely he won't judge. Surely he won't. Not a big deal. Let's just do this and that way we can have the money. Again, we're going to come back to these things. I'm just making observations right now. So we move, we move on and it says right after this Peter's statement, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Is there room for repentance there? It's a declaration you're going to die. Correct? You're going to die. Right now. Verse 10. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. There's one thing interesting about verse 10, the phrase I just, the sentence I just read. Where did she fall down and die? At his feet. Where did they put their money? Interesting. Here's the sacrifice. No, you're the sacrifice. And it will not atone you. Falls at, 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 at Peter's feet. When the young men came in, found her dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And once again, verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. It's interesting that great fear does not end here. Notice what happens later on. Verse 13. We're going to pick up on it next week, but verse 13. None of the rest... Let me start at 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dare join them. 
but the people held them in high, in high esteem. That's an interesting response, isn't it? Suddenly, nobody wanted to join them. Now, who's this nobody? Because it's going to get clarified. It sounds almost contradictory in a few verses. Who's the nobodies? Nobody want, dared to join them. I'll tell you who the nobodies are. He's talking about nobody who is unsaved. Dares to join them. Why? There's a price to pay. Is that what you said too, Jim? There's a price to pay. There's a cost to following Jesus. This is not a status thing. This is not name recognition. This is not a card into the club. There's a cost. And when you violate, what happens? You die. Do you get that? So none of those people who were just looking for the status, for the kingdom, their own, to use the church for their own ends, none of that not, those people said, no way. Not going there. But notice just a few verses later. But, oh, before we get a few verses later, or a verse later, it says at the same time that they held these people uh, that are in the church at this point in time in high esteem. Later on they will not. But at this point in time, they're holding them in high, high esteem. Why? Because they're putting it all down, aren't they? They realize there's a risk to following Jesus. There's a cost to following Jesus. And you screw it up, and you're in there for the wrong reasons, and you die. You hear that? So they're not daring, but they're holding these people in high esteem because these people are putting it all down. But notice, next verse, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So what's happening? All those who aren't saved, who aren't interested in being saved, they're saying, we're not going there. Does that make sense? We're not going there. That message, that gospel, that good news, I'm not interested in. That's not for me. Therefore, I will not darken that door, so to speak. But for those who are being added to the church by the... No, before we get to the thousands, those that are adding by, being added by the Holy Spirit, those are coming by the thousands, aren't they? Multitudes. They're being drawn by the Spirit. So the ones who are not coming are who? The lost who aren't interested, they're not coming. But for those who are caught by the Holy Spirit, captivated by the Holy Spirit, redeemed, enthralled with Jesus, they are coming. You know what the implication of that is? Those people are doing what? They're laying it all down, aren't they? They're saying, no cost too high. We will be identified with the God that kills. We will stand with the God, with the God who will kill people. We identify with that God who, call, who is holy and calls for holiness. We will identify with that God who is after His kingdom because we're after His kingdom. We will identify with a God, with that God, who is all about His glory, because we're also all about His glory. You get that? And those people are coming. But for all those who are looking at it saying, I just want what I can get out of it, they're not interested. Why? They're not coming. Why? 
Because the cost is too high. The risk is too great. This God kills. This God does not tolerate lies. This God does not tolerate unholiness. It's a terrifying thing, isn't it? Well, do, yes. Say it again. Yes, absolutely. Thank you, because that's exactly where I was going to go, Jim. Because we look at this and say, yeah, God killed Ananias and Sapphira early in the church here, right? Just like early in the Old Testament, he killed Achan, right? And his family. But Steve, that's really the anomaly, isn't it? That's not really the rule, isn't it? Well, let's stop for a second. Think about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's one of the two passages I wanted to go to, Jim. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Be careful that you don't take communion in an unworthy manner, right? In a casual manner. In, an, in a flippant manner. Why? Because you're making a mockery of the cross work of Jesus by doing so. That's what he says. That's what it means. And what happens when we do that, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is that some, what? Some die and many get sick. That, that passage is real. I believe that passage. Now, I'm not saying all sickness is because of personal sin. That's not what Peter or Paul's saying either. And James kind of plays off the same thing in James chapter 5. When he says, if you're sick, have the elders pray over you. And, and if, there's any, if there's any sin that's unrepentant and you repent, it basically says he'll heal you. Because the sin is from, uh, from uh, or the, the, the sickness therefore is from sin in those cases. Again, it doesn't mean that all sickness is from sin. But the point is, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, James chapter 5, and there are a lot of other places as well. They make it really clear that on the one hand we know that sin or sickness is from sin, right? We know that. There would be no sickness in the world if it wasn't for sin from, from the fall of Adam. But on the other side of the coin, we also know that this is one of the ways that God does what? He disciplines and sometimes judges. And by the way, the reason why he mentions sicknesses and, and deaths in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is because on the one hand you have people... I would, I would argue anyway, the deaths are because of people just like Ananias and Sapphira. They're not saved people, but they're participating. No. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I argue that Christians do get sick. And sometimes, but, but I think the death in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is probably more from unsaved people participating in communion and in mockery. And I'm not saying he always does that, but I'm just saying it does. It, I think that's what he's talking about. But sickness, on the other hand, is probably referencing uh, 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 believers in the church that not, have not yet repented. And, and God has brought sickness. I often wonder, I'm just going to say this. I'm not, I'm not being objective. I'm being very subjective at this point in time. I wonder how much of our sickness as believers, not just in our church, but in every church. I wonder. I don't know. I wonder how much of sickness that we get is because of unrepentant sin that we've not repented of yet. I wonder. I don't know. And please, I'm not making an accusation to anybody. I just wonder. Because the Bible talks about this is one of the tools God uses 
to deal with his people and to deal with counterfeits. Does that make sense? Counterfeits and his people. doesn't mean we sit around contemplating our belly button for the next seven weeks trying to figure out if I sin somewhere. You know, I really have a really big view of the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the things that's really appropriate if you're sick is to ask, ask God, is there some unconfessed sin I'm missing here? Is there? Where you're not being glorified. I, I want to deal with it if it's there. Open my eyes to see. And then if something comes to mind because the Spirit's powerful enough to bring those things to mind, then we should deal with it. You see, when we get sick, what's the first thing we usually do as humans? We go to the doctor, don't we? It's one of the first things we do, go to the doctor. And if we pray, we often just pray for healing, right? That's all we pray for. We rush to the human physician, we don't rush to the great physician. With the prescription that he tells us is relatively common. Relatively common. And I think it's appropriate that the first stop is not pray for healing or pray for pray or, or rush off to the doctor. The first stop ought to be, God, as I'm going to the doctor, if there's something else going on here that I've got to deal with spiritually, please open my eyes to see. If not, that's okay. But as I think, Tom, you mentioned, the idea that God disciplines, he chastises. There's no question. Who he loves, he chastises, right? If he doesn't chastise us, what are we? Illegitimate, illegitimate children. Hebrews chapter 12. And certainly we have to recognize, what does he say in chapter 12? He says, no discipline is joyous in the moment, right? Anybody here ever have a sickness that's joyous? Woohoo, this is so exciting. I got mono. Woo! How exciting is that? Woo, I got cancer. This is amazing. No. This is one of those things that should every single time prompt us. First prompt should be, God, what's going on? Is there something I need to deal with? Ask your Holy Spirit to open my eyes to see. Something I need to confess? We are sinners, aren't we? Aren't we? Important thing. Thank you for bringing that up, Jim. So, we've, we've done all the observations. I just want to touch on a couple things. I hope I'm prompting some thinking in your minds. But as I look at this text, and I think about the church, because it's, it's a text about the early church, we find the early church in general is enthralled with Jesus. In general. We find them captivated with their Redeemer. But here we have an exception. Here we have a pretty dramatic exception. And later on, as I've already said, as we go through the Scriptures, we find that it be, it. it pretty quickly evidences itself that the Ananias and Sapphira's are more the norm in the church. And the Peters and the other apostles and the, and the other believers end up being more the anomaly. Because narrow is the way, right? But God only keeps a faithful remnant. And so there's a couple things we can pick up here and challenge ourselves with. Let me ask you, are, do you find the Spirit calling you to repentance? It's a really important question because Ananias and Fire are not being called to repentance. Are they? They're not being called to repentance at all. They're just being brought to punishment. Do you find yourself regularly being called 
to repentance. The Spirit is at work convicting you of your sin and calling you back. Do you find that regular? When I say regular, I'm not talking about the way most people think about regular. Most people think about regular as like once a week. No, once a month. Biannually. The picture in the Scriptures is more of a a lifestyle of repentance, isn't it? And if, if the picture of the Scriptures is a lifestyle of repentance, would that not mean that we would we would have also in our lives a lifestyle of recognition of our failure to measure up? Would we not therefore have in our lives a lifestyle of conviction? If there's a lifestyle of repentance, of repentance in a true believer, should there also not precursor-wise be a lifestyle of realization? A lifestyle of conviction? A lifestyle of brokenness? A lifestyle of grieving? Is that not why Paul says he's always re- grieving and always rejoicing? You know what it says? You know what Paul says? I find it interesting. I've talked to many people who claim to be believers and I've asked many people over my years, you know, when was the last time you repented of a sin? You don't need to tell me what a sin was. When was the last time you repented? And I watch people. It's intriguing to watch. They start almost scratching their head and thinking like, um, well, uh, uh, I don't remember. Um, uh, I remember that time four years ago. What? What's that all about? My goodness, if, if the Spirit's at work in our life, and if the Holy Spirit is absolutely holy, I mean, it's the first to His name, right? <laughs> the Holy Spirit. If He's absolutely holy, and He's working in this fallen sinner, calling me to Jesus, isn't that where He starts always? is the call to repentance for my sin? And if the Holy Spirit truly is holy, then don't you think He'd be calling us on a regular basis in regard to our unholiness, even though we have the righteousness of Christ? Would he not be, I mean, don't you hear that from Paul again in Romans chapter 7? Does he not realize when he says the very things I shouldn't do, those are the very things I do? Do you think he realizes this is ongoing? Common? So I think when we look at the text and we try to wrestle with it and apply it, we have to ask ourselves firstly, am I recognizing the Spirit at work in me calling me to repentance? Because if He's not calling me to repentance, what's the alternative? What's that? Punishment. That's the alternative. If He's not calling me to repentance, that means He's bringing me ultimately to what? Judgment. Is he not? There can't be discipline without conviction, right? That process it involves conviction. A couple of observations that we can apply into our lives in this text. <clears throat> Observation or application number two. Do you ever find yourself when you're being tempted to sin 
thinking it's not a big deal or you can get away with it. That the Holy Spirit kind of will kind of wink at it. Kind of look the other way. Minimize it. We'll kind of have his celestial scales. I mean, we talk about the world that way, right? But too often Christians do the same thing, don't we? You know, I do all these good things for God, and yeah, <clears throat> he'll kind of look the other way. Is that what we find ourselves? You realize when we're thinking that way, according to this text, we're lying to the Holy Spirit, and we are testing the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that? That's what we're doing. We're being just like them, just like these two. Can I just say this? Do you recognize your need for a Redeemer now? Do you recognize your need? If you're looking at yourself and saying, by the Spirit, you're saying, yeah, my goodness. You know, Ananias and Sapphira are kind of bad people. And I do the same thing over and over and over and over again. If that doesn't call us to repentance, I think that's scary. Lastly, there's other things we could point out, but lastly, <clears throat> verse 5, great fear came upon all who heard it. Verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and all, about all who heard these things, upon all who heard those things. Verse 13, none of the rest dared to join them, but the people held them in high, high esteem. Verse 14, and yet, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Can I just ask you a question? Oh, let me make a statement first. If God could do that with Ananias and Sapphira's death, cause great fear to fall on all the people, and believers cause them to do what then? If they're fearing God, what are they going to do? They're going to repent and believe and worship, right? Make sense? And if He can use that to cause other people to come to Christ. And if He can cause the church to be purified, that nobody else is coming in, what do you think He could do with holiness? What do you think He could do with people who are holy? Do you think it's appropriate do you think it, it should be expected? It's just a question. Do you think it should be expected? This is something I've been wrestling with this week and last week as I've been thinking about this text. Do you think it should be expected, laying aside Ananias and Sapphira, whose deaths cause people to fear and yet people to come to Christ? That's what you see, right? Do you think that it should be expected that holiness should have the same effect? Do you think that holiness in people would actually have less of an effect? Don't you think holiness in people that are, are, are worshiping God, glorying in Christ, seeking Christ, magnifying Christ, bringing praise to His name, proclaiming with boldness? I'm just going through all the texts in Acts chapter 2 through 5 through 4. Do you think that holiness in people should have at least that kind of effect? 
and more agitation as well, which will actually come about later on. And, and thanks for throwing that out as well. We can add to it and agitation against those who are holy, right? But yet, at the same time, would God not, wouldn't you expect God to use a body of holy believers that are repentant, worshipers, lovers of God, magnifying Him, being captivated by Him, would you not expect God to work and use that as well? Wouldn't you expect that? Wouldn't you expect that unsaved people, the Spirit aren't working, would find it disgusting and agitated about it? Well, yeah. It evidences itself throughout the rest of the New Testament. But wouldn't you find that for other believers it would draw people to glorify Christ more and more and more and more and more? I mean, if I could use the illustration, I have a wood stove downstairs in the basement. If I put one stick in there, it gets a little bit of heat, right? A little bit. My goodness, when I add a group of logs together, what happens? Warms the whole house, doesn't it? Don't you think that's what the Spirit does in, in a church of people who are sold out for Him, who love Him, who are captivated by Him? The Spirit is moving and there's holiness, there's repentance, there's a pursuit of Christ, a pursuit of knowing Christ and glorying in Christ. Don't you think these things should be happening? I think so. At least the storyline of the Scriptures are that way. It's one of the things that trouble me when I think about even me. I think about me and I say, Steve, Does fear ever fall on people because I exist? I'm not talking about self-glorification. I'm talking because I love Jesus. Does, does fear ever come upon people? That's a good question. Do I ever get harassed, as Tom just said, because of personal holiness? For other believers that are true believers, are other believers coming closer to Christ and becoming enthralled with Christ? Is the Spirit using that? Now, that's not always the case, right? Because it is a remnant. But for those who are true believers, it should be happening, shouldn't it? If I'm in the vine and you're in the vine, should we not be mutually crescendoing like the wood in my fire? And creating all sorts of heat and light? Shouldn't it? It should be expected. And this text causes me to start questioning and starting asking these questions. Am I being too flippant with my Redeemer? Am I being too casual about my future inheritance, Christ? Am I embarrassed by the kingdom of God? Or is really Christ my all in all? That goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, this body they may kill, his truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Does that sound like a foreign construct to us? It was for Ananias and Sapphira. Let some goods and kindreds go, but I want the rest. And ultimately, I'm only letting it go so I can gain something else called my kingdom and glory. The text really challenges me. What is a true Christian? And what does it look like for the Spirit to be at work in our lives? Are these things demonstrating themselves? 
and radiating outwards from us, personally as well as corporately as a church, for the glory of God. Something for us to pray about and think about. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Open our eyes to see. Help us to see, obviously, firstly, if we're believers, but then secondly, and not in, not in lesser importance, but secondly, in order, Lord, help us revive us anew. Open the eyes of our heart so that we will see the glory of You and the glory of Your kingdom. Transform us so that we will be captivated by You. Draw us to repentance. Open our eyes to see our, our, the, the things in our lives that are against You and against Your will and plan. And draw us close. I pray, Lord, in our little body here that we will be a body that causes the fear of God to fall on people as it falls on us. Glorify Yourself. In Your name I pray. Amen.